Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with an Iranian writer-filmmaker who traveled to Afghanistan in 2006 to uncover why women at alarming rates were self-burning as a form of suicide. Sanaz Fatui obtained her master's at the University of Hong Kong and later her PhD at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Exploring the meaning and identity of the mass dispersion of Iranians since the Islamic Revolution, she brings her own life experience to the book she writes and the movie she makes. As one of the founding members of the Persian Film Festival in Australia, you might assume that she creates documentaries, she writes books, and everyone just laps them up. Her story is much more real than that. This conversation is about the resilience and journey of a woman who believes that a book needs to be read. And she believes it so much that she persisted with publishers for 14 years. It is a real celebration of that determination to stay in the game. And it really speaks to this precipice, like literally days away from the launch of Love, Marriage in Kabul, 14 years in the making this book was. So Sanaz, what a great time to speak to speak with you. I mean, I imagine you're busy, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this show. Yeah, I know. It's going to be exciting. It's a great time to be able to talk about something that's been so long in the making. It must just have been quite a journey for you, hey? Oh, incredible. There were, yeah, some times where I'm like, do I really want to do this? (laughs) But (laughs) it feels unreal. It really feels unreal. Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel that that part of your story is what really drew me in. It was really relatable. Um, but I'd love before we kind of get into where you are today, if you could take us into living in Iran at a young age, growing up during the Iran-Iraq war, what was that like? Well, I was actually a child of war. (laughs) Um, I was born right in the middle of the war between um, Iran and Iraq, which went on for eight years. So the first eight years of my life was I remember the war very clearly in the first eight years. Um, And during this time, a door opened for me through um, my dad's interest in reading and writing uh, to become interested in literature. So what he used to do is, because he worked near a space where there was a lot of bookshops. So what he would do is every week, Um, He would buy me a little book and then he would hide it in his briefcase. And then when he would come home, I I would scavenger in his in his briefcase and find that book and I'll read it. And 
And it was such a joy and such an excitement, you know, to, to look for that book and see what he's brought for me that week. Um, and it really planted the seeds um, of an interest in reading and writing and, you know, the literary aspects of things, which is, you know, not what many people would really grapple with when you're in that situation, you know, um, because it's like for a lot of people, it's just basic survival, everyday um, living. But for me, it became an escape. It became like an imagination. And um, when I was about eight, I must have been in year one or two. Um, there's a little in, um, magazine for kids in Iran. It was back then. Uh, and it's called uh, like a children's journal, Kehan uh, Bacha in Farsi. And they used to print kids' stories in, in, in one section of it. And then one day in school, I learned that I could actually send my story to this magazine. And it was a nationwide magazine. And it went, it went through it, you know, all the schools and uh, all the kiosks. And um, I wrote this little five story, six, six, six line story that um, actually got published. And wow. it, it was, it was such a joy. And it was about this little girl who is sitting in her room at night and, um, and then she can't sleep and some, some light comes in through the window and the girl's like, oh my God, what are you? And the girl, and the, the light's like, I am the night angel. And, uh, Every night that you're sleeping, I come and visit you. But tonight, since you're awake, um, I'm here. Um, you know, you can see me. And the girl's like, well, since you're here, take me on a journey. And the angel's like, sure, I'll take you on a journey. And then they go on this journey all around the world. And then she brings her back. So it was that moment when that, that was published. And when I saw it published, I was like, wow, this is an incredible feeling. And I want to be a writer. So you made that decision after you got published there. I made that decision. I was like eight years old. I remember it very clearly. Yeah. It's amazing. You're telling that story because I'm like, that sounds a lot like her life. Um, <laughs> in terms of the light coming in and the escape that you found in the books in your father's briefcase. But I, I would love, just give me a little more context because I can imagine 90% of the people listening will never have known a war-torn environment, never have grown up in one. My father-in-law was born in a bomb shelter in the UK, in London. And, you know, the stories of that, for him, it's difficult sometimes to share because to him, it was just normal. Of course that happened. Like, I think of it when I'm having my child, like, his mother was amidst other people delivering a child, you know, and he had a sister. And so I, you know, it starts to come to life for me as I imagine this is an actual mother's, you know, so paint a little picture for me when you're born into, you said this war that you remember, what is actually happening every day? Like, are you experiencing fear? Do you, you walk to school and there's danger? Do you not go to school? What happens? Well, it's, it's interesting because one of the stories that my mom tells me is when I was in her tummy, uh, so we used to see the planes going up and we used to see the missiles, you know, like it just there. And then you would actually 
hear them, you know, bang. And then, you know, there's some, you could see the smoke sometimes, even though we were in Tehran, which is not the, the heart of the war, because mm-hmm. the majority of it happened in the South, but you still got impacted. And one of the stories my mom says is when I was in her tummy, I must have been really little, like maybe four, four you know, like so little that I wasn't really moving. Um, so she said that there was a bomb. And what happened is that she got so scared that mm-hmm. she felt me just swoosh through one side to the other side of her tummy. And it was like, she was so, uh, you know, distraught because she was like, oh my God, what's happening to this child? And it's amazing because um, we just grew up with that kind of uh, thing all around us. And it's so normal, you know, like uh, there would be the red alarm going off uh, very occasionally. And then we would all run into the basement and hide in the basement and then in the basement there was this uh we used to put the this blanket to cover up the light at night so that you know the aircrafts wouldn't see the majority of the places which are um livable um and yeah it was it was quite dull and grim because don't forget that we just also come out of a revolution which was finding its feet um so the country was finding its feet and then also losing its feet at the same time so which was a lot of pressure um on everybody you know and and the degree of like um when I I look back at it now trauma if you want to say it it is so normalized I don't even see it as trauma and then when something happens and I go oh wow that's actually quite traumatic it but it's become so normalized and then I'm like well all people in my generation uh, and older who experienced that period have it. And it's just so normal. So. Yeah. I, I lived with someone that was in um, she's yeah, this age as well. And she hadn't felt that she was that impacted. She was a teenager and she also had these sirens mm. and, and the parents, they used, well, they they didn't go in the basement. They used to go to a, like a communal one. And um she remembers never going. She stayed at home and all her family went and she would just stay in her bed. And she thought, well, that she just told it matter of factly, almost like you are until at work, they did like this kind of silent fire drill and she was Mm -hmm. on a business call and the alarm went off and she just stopped speaking. And the person for about five minutes, she wasn't there. And she came home, we were living with her in Switzerland and she came home and shared that. And I was like, she's like, something happened to me, you know? And she was like reliving it or something. She went to another place. And like you said, trauma. Um, Yeah. And so all these years, like you've just had a baby. So imagine your mom about to have a baby in that environment and what that would have been like as well. Goodness. And look, it, it brings a lot of sympathy when I look back um uh, at my mom you know uh it's like wow you had to deal with all that in his mere survival you know she had to not only worry about like bringing like having healthy living children um concerned that we're going to actually live uh she had to also like deal with lining up because we used to get food coupons for like you know cheap 
like government subsidized things. So mm-hmm. she used to go and line up for the food coupons and she used to buy seasonal stuff, cut them up, like pack them, freeze them. Um, so it was full on and it brings so much um, sympathy when you look back at it from that perspective. Um, wow. Thank you for sharing that because I think, so, you know, I have a, a curiosity, but never a lived experience. So um, yeah, just amazing what you've been through. And when, like you said, it was just normal to you. However, did you dream, like I know you were dreaming about the books and in your imagination, did you dream one day of leaving your country and exploring the world? Look, uh, not in those terms, uh, but what I used to do uh, is I had a classmate uh, when I was in the first grade and she was this little cute girl uh, and she had this mom and dad who were really cool and they used to pick her up and then uh, they would disappear. She, she wouldn't come to school for weeks and weeks and then she would turn up all tanned, you know, uh, and then she'd be like, oh, well, I've just been to India or I've just been to Dubai, you know. And then in my little mind, I'll go like, huh, where? You know, it was incomprehensible for me coming from the background that we we did, you know. Uh, and then what I used to do is um, I used to lie in our garden and look up in the sky. And then I used to see the planes coming over, the, the, you know, flying. And I used to just remember sitting there and imagining myself uh, being in that plane and imagining where it's going. I had no idea what Dubai looked like, India looked like. But like there was this longing in me um, to experience that. And I didn't know how or, or it was possible because we didn't even have enough. My dad was working two jobs. Uh, we could just barely make ends meet. I'd never been on a plane. Uh, we, you know, we the only holiday we had was like just domestic and usually very cheap. And it was just impossible uh, for us to do that. And like I somehow it just manifested. And here we are, you know, like many years later. Thank you for saying that because that's what my mind was as I was hearing that the the longing and the looking, the imagining um, that you were doing is really beautiful. So when you first left your country for the first time, was it to go to university in Hong Kong? Was that your first? No, no, no. So the first time was um, my my dad used to work as a banker. He's a banker, and he got actually posted to go to Japan. So we moved when I was. 12, 11, 12, um, we moved from Tehran to Tokyo. Wow. So, yeah, so we lived in Japan for about four years. Then it was meant to be a short, you know, it was meant to be a two-year post, got extended. Then uh, we moved to uh, America. So he got posted to um, New York uh, and then eventually to Los Angeles and then eventually to Hong Kong uh so yeah so that's that's the journey in some wow so i'm just visualizing the 12 year old landing in tokyo and mm. then in New York in la okay so my question is what was it like when you experienced yourself as iranian for the first time because you know when you're like i'm canadian so you're just canadian everybody else is and then you move away And then it's different, you know, like people have a perception of you. So what did you experience that you can recall of your identity and where you come from as you moved into new cultures? Well, that 
period actually is, I would say it's a very impactful period for me um, because there's a lot of trauma around it, a lot mm-hmm. of chart uh, that I have dealt with, you know, over the years and oh, wow. also a lot of impact on who I am, you know, like the resilience, the resilience that I got is from that because like, mm-hmm. like Imagine being um, 12 years old, not speaking any English, not speaking any Japanese, and then being thrown into the deep end of going, okay, you're going into an international school where you have to speak English mm-hmm. and, and being different, you know? And so it was, it, was, um, it was very challenging. Yes. Uh, and it developed me into who I am today. I, that's all I can say. You know, the resilience yeah, of, like, yeah. you know, like I can write it out through tough situations. <laughs> yeah, got it. Because yeah. I, I didn't want to gloss over that because I'm visualizing she doesn't speak Japanese, I'm pretty sure. And then you end up getting, you know, you go to university in Hong Kong. So, you know, you, and by the way, that's, do you do an English degree there? Is that how yeah. that works? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then what actually brings you to Australia, where you currently are? Well, so I met Amin, Amin Palangi, who um, we made the film together with, actually, we, we traveled to Afghanistan with. So okay. I met him and then um, moved moved for him. Yeah, got with it. Yeah. And you yeah. met him in somewhere, obviously, in Hong Kong or? No, I met, I met him at a conference in Iran, actually. So he was invited from Australia. I was invited from Hong Kong. And, and then we met. Uh, and then we got married. And then I moved um, for him to Australia. Wow. Okay. So here you are in Australia. You've been had lots of resilience training <laughs> through your life to build you up to. And you mean, you're doing a PhD, you know, in Australia. So you're quite an academic. What spurs you on to actually travel to Afghanistan to make the film in 2006? Like what, was that just obvious that you would do that? Or did you have, did, did you go through something to choose to go there? Well, two things. It's interesting talking about manifestation. Uh, mm-hmm. As years before this, uh, because I'm a very avid journaler, I journal a, a lot. Uh, and ever since I remember, I have journaled. Ever since I could write, I've been journaling. And every year I used to write these um, lists of what I want to do in my life, what I want to do this year, next year, you know, it's just natural. No one ever taught me. It just felt right, you know, to kind of envision the year. Um, And somehow, somewhere I became interested in Afghanistan, maybe through a movie. I don't remember particularly when, when I, when I saw stuff about Afghanistan and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to this country and experience it? And then also um, find a way to help its people, you know, Mm. because it's a country which is devastated. Right. Mm. Uh, And then, then my dream was maybe I'll be an NGO worker. Maybe I'll be a journalist. And I explored working with CNN and it didn't work out, you know? So, so it was like, I had that desire. And in 2003, two or three, uh, I don't particularly remember, but I mentioned this in the book. My dad, who was retired, was suddenly given a call saying, hey, you know, we are going to open this bank up in Kabul. And this is right after the Taliban have left, right? And nobody wants to actually volunteer to go to Afghanistan. And um, 
they're like, do you want to come help us? Because he was, you know, he had a lot of experience. And everyone is like, oh, my God, are you crazy? You want to go to Afghanistan at the heart of all this this situation? And I was like, you should go. You should go. You, it, you'll be fine, you know. Um, and I was, I was sure he'll be fine, you know. And um, he did. Uh, and that opened an opportunity for us to, to travel. So when he was there for a few years, um, Amin and I traveled to Afghanistan because Amin is a filmmaker. Uh, and so we went and we were like, well, this is amazing. Every corner you turn, there is a story to, to be told and made. Sure. Um, so yeah, so that's how we actually gained an interest in Afghanistan and what became the subsequent trips. And meeting these women in Afghanistan who self-burn as a form of suicide, like what did you learn about the state of things in Afghanistan when you met those women? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, How severe the situation has been, was. It's changing now slightly, very, very slightly. Uh, but how severe the situation was for women. Because here I was, you know, thinking, oh, the situation in Iran for women was bad, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I thought. And then when you go to somewhere like Afghanistan, you're like, oh, my God, the situation in Iran for women is not bad. It's all relative, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, it's all a scale of, it's a sliding scale of where you are and what expectation and what freedoms and whatever that means in that culture. But for the woman back then, especially 2006, when we were there, it was like, oh, wow. You know, they've, they've just come out of a, one of the strictest Islamic regimes in the world where they've been cooped up, no education. They, there's all these traditions. There's all these um, pressures. There's people coming back from other countries because the country's opened up, but it's poor. So people have bring in their poverty there's forced marriage so it was severe it was devastating mm. it was absolutely like just just being present to it was really uh, humbling and humiliating and mm. um he, yeah just being a woman and experiencing that i felt ashamed actually of what's going on and and how we as the world are not getting it and we were not contributing the way we should because we're just preoccupied with other concepts. So like you said, like that, yeah, where people are, they think what they're going through is the worst. And then, Hmm. like you said, there's so many things clearly of someone self burning to end it. It's really bad. And so when you create a, like a documentary to really bring this forward and it wasn't as well received as you had hoped, what did you do with that? Well, because it was so confronting, people are like, we don't want to know about this. It's just too much, too much, right? Um, So what we did was we kept persisting. We're like, you know what? We need to make another film. Uh, So for three years, two, three years after that, we kept looking for ideas. And that's how the documentary, the second documentary, Love, Marriage in Kabul, came along, which was... um, then we traveled with Mahbuba Ravi, who has a charity in uh, Australia, and we traveled with her. We stayed 
for a month with her where she was following um, one of the first boys that she saved through her charity to help him um, see this marriage through to this girl across the valley that he was in love with. And we all knew if that marriage didn't happen, the fate of that girl was going to be like the woman who I'd seen. So there was a lot of like, oh my God, we need to make this happen. And we need to, um, to document this. So yeah. And then the result of that, which took another um, however many years to actually turn the footage into a film because we went through life and that um, became Love, Marriage and Couple, the film, the documentary. So even that language, like this marriage had to happen. Give me what's what was just a couple of things that were in the way of it happening. See, this is things that a lot of people can't even relate to. What do you mean? What's in the way? If they want to get married, they get married. What, what really happened? So what really happened is that, um, so, and I talk about this in the book and it's in the film. It's the main story of the film. And um, uh, to get more exactly like, you know, the detail, I recommend you watch the, the film and read mm. the book. Um, is that it, the sum of it is that her father uh, wanted too much money for a dowry. Mm-hmm. so he wanted too much money and he was a little bit affected by he was mentally affected by the whole um because his wife died during when he was in prison so he was not all there um so he was preventing the marriage so he he would change his word every day uh and like Abdul Fattah who is the boy he didn't have any money because you know he he was some boy who was supported by Mahbuba's promise, um, so there's that, and then there's cultural differences. So it's it there's many many different obstacles um, that prevented that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you you're able to allow us in to see how a culture really works. Like even as you begin to describe little pieces of it, um, one of my friends who has an arranged marriage, for example, just being really close friends with her is just amazing because all the little innuendos that that entails, they have a fantastic marriage. It's so fascinating. It's interesting to me, but you know, there's just these little ins and outs around the culture. So I get that watching and reading your book will be the insight. So thank you for that. So you fought for this though, 14 years, there was, not everybody said straight away they didn't see the light as you'd hoped initially. So what was required of you to keep going for 14 years? Yeah, well, when I actually had the idea for this book in 2006, right? So we, as soon as we got back from that first trip, I was like, I need to write this. So I wrote a draft of whatever happened in that trip. Uh, and I started approaching publishers, I started approaching agents, and then they're like, well, not really, there's not really story here. Um, and I was like, well, all right, we'll park it. So when, t- when 2009 happened, um, then that whole story with the making of the second film happened. And I was like, well, there's definitely a story here. Um, so I wrote that piece. Then as soon as we got back, I, I wrote that. Uh, and then that took a while because I was in the midst of a PhD. I was in the midst of uh, um, running the Persian Film Festival. Uh, we went through a separation. Uh, I moved to Melbourne, you know, so, so all of that was happening. 
And then I was persistent. I was like, no, I need to do this. So I wrote draft after draft and then send it to agents, send it to publishers, rejections. Uh, and then people pointed me in different directions. You should get it edited. So I did it. I edited it uh, and then and then submitted. And then I, there was one point that many points where I was like, you know what? Maybe this, maybe I should just give up. Yeah. Uh, and then something would come up and I go, well, no, if I give this up, that's, that to me is, it, it just feels wrong. There's something about it that I need to get this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kept persisting, editing, rewriting, approaching people. And what really made a difference was um, when I submitted it for the Peter Blasey Award, um, 2018, mm-hmm. 17, 18. Um, and I forgot about it because, you know, as I do, it's just, it's become such a thing that I just submitted to, to places and then I'll get a rejection or, or, you know, some kind <laughs> of an interest. And then one day I get an email saying, I won the prize. And I'm like, huh, oh my God, this is like incredible. <laughs> so, so, so that prize really made a difference because um, what happened was uh, I got a new interest in the manuscript. Mm. So I started working on it, re- revisiting it. And interestingly enough, uh, when I re-edited the manuscript, uh, one of my friends suggested go and check out this, this publisher called Gazebo Books. And so I'll go onto their website, checking out to see what they got. And the first thing that I see is Peter Blaze's memoir. And I'm like, what? You know, because Peter Blaze um, was a gay activist, but he is not really well known, right? Uh, and if, unless you're looking for him, he's not really well known. And so this publisher had published Peter Blaze's memoir and it turned out that Peter Blaze's partner was one of the founding members of this publishing house. Okay. And so there was a link, there was like an interest. And then when I emailed them, I said, look, I've just won this prize, which is, you know, you guys may be interested. And he was like, that is perfect. This, um, uh, he's like, that is just perfect for us and it turned out that actually um uh Xavier the publisher um he uh it's it comes from an NGO background his partner is now in Kabul in and out with NGOs so it was like could this get any more aligned so when when this happened I was like wow this is all that work and all that rejection and all that near near publications there was a reason for it. And it was meant to be that I align with this particular publisher. So so I want to give people a little teaser about your new project around manifestation. But before that, can you make a distinction from what you now know about persisting? You know, there was a sense of like for 14 years, persisting and aligning. You know, like when you, when all of a sudden it went from no, 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 to this is perfect. You're exactly what we've been looking for. Like that seems like opposite to what you've been experiencing. What do you think from what you now know about manifesting? What do you think was going on in for you in those prior years versus when it finally just all started to click? Well, a couple of things. There's a, this force. So what I've learned in, over the years is that if I want to force an outcome, it usually doesn't because it's coming from a, sp- a space of I want, I want something to happen. And that I is usually not coming from a space of like, 
it's ego driven. Um, and I think that's for me that that was actually a huge part of this journey was when I started it, 2006, uh, it was all about the women. It was all about like, I need to tell these women's stories, right? And what happened is me being human, as we are all, uh, what kicked in for me was, uh, okay, which publisher do I want to publish? Which prize do I want to aim for? How, what am I going to get from this? What am I going to like? It all became I, 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 how am I going to do this? Well, I don't want it to be like that. I don't want it to look like that. And so I got in the way. I really did. And, and it was a lot of like me um, pushing and wanting, forcing, wanting things to look a certain way. And there was a point where I was like, you know what? And it took a lot of self-work. It didn't come easily and naturally, you know. It took a lot of uh, reflection and self-work in other areas of my life to go, you know what, you're in your own way. Just mm. get out of your own way and let things align and happen. And as soon as I had that that understanding, that opening, then it didn't matter. It wasn't about me anymore. And I was able to connect to the original intention of why I wanted to do this. And then when that really aligned, it was like, it was easy. It just, it just happened because <laughs> I got out of the way. <laughs> so. And is that what your new project is about? Can you give us just a little bit of what you now are creating so that other people can maybe have that moment that you've just described for themselves? Well, the, the project that I'm creating is, uh, it, it comes from my own personal experience of uh, manifestation and creation. So as I said, I'm a very big journal journaler, if you can call it that. So I journal a lot uh, and I reflect a lot and I project and I um, put ideas out a lot. So uh, um, over the years, I've realized that, you know what, like we can design every aspect of our lives like how we want it but as i said like you need to first align right um and so what i'm working on is a series of journals that people can take in different areas of their lives and then go through a process of manifestation and getting clear on exactly what they want and these um journals would include everything from um, how you want your ideal partner to look like uh, uh, or, or what kind of partner you want to call into your life rather um, and what kind of birth you want for your child what kind of family do you want to create because uh, I really believe that we are we are the effect we're not at the effect of and once we get that then creation becomes easy and and I hope that these little things that I'm creating journals will help that click for people, you know, because you, you told me a distinction though. Like when sometimes when people want to design something, they kind of write this almost like a place to place to order partner that they want or something. But you said something really important because almost like with your book, I want it to be like this and I want the publish, you know, these demands. What's the difference between what you're doing and like what you're showing through this journaling process? There was a little distinction there. 
There is. The, the distinction is this. Um, for example, let's take the partner one because it's it's easier, easier to um, give as an example. Um, so a lot of people, including myself, when I was you know single, would go, I want this kind of a man and he has got to look like this and that and that and that. It's like a shopping list. And then the ideal man could be walking into your life and you look at your shopping list and you go, well, he ticks this box. He doesn't tick that that box and it's all about like what I want right but the distinction here is um getting interested in yourself and going well yeah you know that's what I want but what am I creating and what am I putting out there and what kind of an experience do I want to have and create and I'm going to call that person into my life to co-create that experience with me Mm. right so it will be like I want to, for example, uh, live an adventurous life and I want to travel to South America and I want to do these things. Uh, and these are my values, right? And when, when you get really clear on what your own values are, are then uh, you project that and you go, oh, I want to co-create this and I want to invite somebody to share this experience with me. It's not like, are oh, you going to have to come and make me happy? No, it's like, I'm going to create this and you're going to come into my life and we're going to co-create this and be happy together. And if you go away, okay, we're, you go away. You know, I'm, I'm still happy because I'm creating this experience and I'm offering to share it with you. And what happens in that process is if a person comes along who doesn't want to have that experience with you, then, okay, you know, you're not up for the fun stuff that I'm going to have. Okay. Too bad. Too sad for you. Yeah, <laughs> it's not we're, not, we're not aligned. Yeah. We're not aligned. I'm like, I'm not going to sulk over and go, well, oh, you know, you don't love me or I'm going to do something to make you love me because all right, well, you're going to miss out on the experience that I'm creating. And when you come from that perspective, it's in all areas of life it, it where it be like what my career is like what do I want to project what do I want to bring to the world even through this book what do I want to bring into the world as opposed to what prize do I want to win what do I want to get from it it's it shifts the focus and it opens something up for um real manifestation and real you know um creation what you're sharing, I find it really profound. I've got like all these friends in my mind that will totally benefit from what you just shared mm. um, because I really got that distinction between demanding of life and creating. And it creating is, like you said, it's easy because we always we all have the power to do it. You know, it's, a, it's an access. You can do it right now. And there's no demands. There's no force on it and yeah I just think that it sounds like it's logical but for a lot of people this is groundbreaking and and really beautifully said very much looking forward to reading your book um and watching you know I'm going to read the book first that's just what I love to do um and so we're going to put in the show notes how people can do that because I know people are going to instantly go well how can I do this how can I get this um and so we'll do that for sure and I just want to thank you for opening yourself up and just being so honest and I think we can all really relate to your experience of resiliency and and how you just let go and then it all just not just and then it came to pass so thank you for sharing that thank you so much
We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.